Hello, I'm Cathy Rensenbrink and this is the Bookseller Podcast. Hello and welcome to the March edition of the Bookseller Podcast. The Bookseller has been the magazine of the book trade since 1858. In this monthly podcast, we bring you reviews, recommendations and author interviews from the best of this month's publishing. Today I'll be joined by Philip Jones, Alice O'Keefe and Caroline Sanderson to discuss what March has in store for us and then we'll be interrogating Nick Pearson from Fourth Estate about his illustrious career and what it feels like to be the editor of Hilary Mantel. Two author interviews this month, Pete Perfides talks to us about his memoir Broken Greek and Robert Webb, who had huge success with his memoir How Not To Be A Boy, tells us about writing his debut novel Come Again. Finally, we'll play out with an audio clip of Hamlet by Maggie O'Farrell. So, let me introduce you to this show's contributors and experts. We've got Alice O'Keefe and Caroline Sanderson from The Bookseller. Hello. Hello. And the editor of The Bookseller is with us today, Philip Jones. Hi, Cathy. So, Philip, tell us, what's the hot topic in books this month? Well, I think the hot topic at the moment, and just announced this week, is a seven-book children's book deal with Simon Cowell, of all people, and his son, Eric announced by Hachette Children's Group, which is one of the bigger sort of children's publishers in the UK. And the idea behind it is that you combine two different species to form hybrid animals with this distinct characteristics. So Simon and Eric will be collaborating on these seven books that will begin being released um, next year. And ideas that they've come up with are combining dog and cat for dat. Or uh, cog, presumably. S- or cog is the other one, yeah. Or snail and dog for snog. Um, <laughs> uh, hippo and kangaroo for hipparoo. And uh, chimpanzee poodle for chimpanpoo. Now, celebrity book deals are, uh, as everyone knows, ten a penny in the book business we get them in the children's area particularly but we also get celebrity autobiographies that are often ghostwritten so it's not always that the celebrity is um, heavily involved in the writing of these books or even in the creative but they lend their name to them and clearly their platforms to them that's the attraction to the publishers now for some reason this has caused great consternation on social media among many children's authors and illustrators who feel that a simon cowell isn't even a writer uh, he's a very famous um, TV producer, of course, and um, noted critic of other people's creative activities. But he's not a writer, so that's annoyed a lot of people. The idea is hardly original. You get these sort of uh, flip books that combine two animals mm-hmm. that you can um, uh, read with your kids. And lots of children's authors have been kind of referring back to their own versions of this idea. So it has caused a sort of ruffle on social media, which um, Hachette is... Um, uh, ignoring as publishers tend to when these things erupt and it does open again that wider debate about whether uh, celebrity authors uh, whether they're doing their memoirs or whether they're doing creative um, writing like children's books are getting in the way of uh, genuine writers and there's some I think validity in those arguments. Having said that the children's book market since 2010 has risen 60 million it's massively outpaced every other sector overtook fiction in 2014 so it's gone from 320 million sales to 380 million sales i think in 2019 so you might say that children's publishers do know what they're doing and um, having a celebrity attached to a book can often expand the market and bring in readers that otherwise wouldn't buy those books you know he's a big name and people will buy it because it's him and his son eric and presumably people who maybe don't normally buy books might buy them exactly so david walliams who is a the same parish as Nick, of course. You know, when he when he brings a new book out, it brings in 10 million of extra sales every year. And, and over 10 years, he's brought in 100 million of extra sales. So we don't know how many of those sales would have gone to other writers had David Walliams not written those books. But um, it seems fairly obvious that he's bringing in people who don't normally buy books. I think as well, I get really used to people being very snooty about David Walliams' books. But I don't live in London anymore. I live, you know, with normal people. And the only time really that books cut through is with David Williams publication that's the only time when the people I know in my normal life rather than my professional life really talk about books and they talk about how excited their kids are about the next David Williams books and when I listen to my my son has struggled with reading and he loves reading David Williams books they've been huge for him and he listens to the audio and honestly when I hear his laughter at the audiobook I kind of slightly want to record it and play it back to everybody who seems to think there's no value in them because I don't know what 
basis they're what they're making that judgment on well, i think some of it's jealousy with williams it's slightly different because he obviously was a writer so i think that helps in terms of mounting a defense for him and um his books are really good i agree i mean i, I read i read and his... a huge creative power i think yeah. there's this whole thing in books why do we think somebody like david williams with everything he's achieved creatively isn't going to be able to turn his hands to writing a book. I'm sorry, I don't exactly. know whether any of this applies back to Simon Cowell and his child. Well, the fun thing is, of course, David Williams and Simon Cowell do have a kind of like on TV rivalry, which will make this a bit of fun when the books come out. Yeah. Who will outsell the other? Um, which I think will add a bit of spice to the whole thing. The, the issue is that sometimes publishers are can be seen to be sort of scraping the bowel a little bit, going for a name just because it's a name, not because they have a good or creative idea. I'm not saying that's the case with Simon Cowell, but it has been with some others and all of them do particularly well so they do suck a bit of oxygen out of the market i remember madonna from a decade ago with a something like an eight book series i think the first one sold pretty well but then the rest declined as she clearly lost interest and that is always going to be disappointing to other writers who want some of that marketing spend spent on them well of course and i completely get you know all writers sort of want people to buy their books rather than the spangly shiny offerings of the famous people so will you be buying them for your children philip well, it's the kind of game you can play with your kids in the car, isn't it? And I came up with the one this morning, combine rabbit and knit and you get rabbit. Yes. Where's my book deal? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit worried about telling you. <laughs> Perfect for fourth estate. I'm a bit worried about telling my son about it because he'll look at me in that slightly disappointed way that if I was a bit more famous, maybe we could have a book deal and that would be fun. I think what will sell these books, ironically, will be the illustrations. And hopefully Hachette will get in a really high-class illustrator. Um, hopefully somebody we've not, who isn't kind of particularly famous or sells lots of books currently and kind of can elevate someone's career off the back of Simon Cowell, which, of course, is what he's done in other areas. So, And tell me about publishers and Twitter. I have a, a love-hate relationship with Twitter that at the moment is mainly a hate-hate relationship with Twitter. And do people pay attention? Because it often seems to me the only people that think Twitter matters are the people that are on Twitter giving their time to being outraged about things. Do publishers have to care? Uh, I don't think they have to care. I think some do care. I mean, Twitter can actually drive debates and um, publishing decisions, as we saw with the um, American Dirt yeah. um, issue. I know it went outside of Twitter in the end, but it certainly began on Twitter because it so elevates what people are saying and thinking. Uh, my view of Twitter is a lot of people on publishing Twitter, as it's called, are sort of throwing rocks from the outside, which I always find a bit disappointing because if yeah. they went into publishing companies or met people like Nick, they would discover that publishers are really on the side of the gods and they, they deserve their support, not the opprobrium that you often get levelled at. And they can't publishing. answer back, can they? That's the other thing. It always feels like bullying to me. I wish they would. I wish HarperCollins or Hachette or Penguin Random House would mount a solid defence of celebrity publishing because, you know, in the round, I think it probably works, and I think it probably does expand the market. And I think you can make that argument really well with stats and figures, and you know, uh, re- really good examples. I wish they would do that, um, and I've been saying that for uh, as long as I've been editor, and they rarely do, and it's always a disappointment. So maybe we'll ask Nick some of these questions in, the in five moral or ten of the minutes. Story being more people should listen to Philip. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, that was very exciting. Um, Nice controversial start to our programme. Alice, tell us about fiction in March. What have you got to recommend for us? I'm definitely going to be less controversial, (laughs) Cathy, because I'm going to start with an author who, and I just can't believe this, but her debut was 20 years ago after you'd gone. I'm talking, of course, about Maggie O'Farrell, who is just the most wonderful writer. This is her eighth novel overall that I'm going to talk about. But interestingly, it's her first historical novel. And it's called Hamnet. And it's the story of Shakespeare's only son, Hamnet, who died when he was just 11 years old. And of course, a few years after his death, Shakespeare went on to write possibly his most famous play, Hamlet. And this is also the story of Agnes, Shakespeare's wife, um, who is more commonly known as Anne Hathaway. But when I met Meg O'Farrell to, to talk about this book, she told me that actually her name was Agnes. And in this, in Hamnet, Maggie O'Farrell kind of takes issue really with the popular conception of um, Anne Hathaway as this sort of older woman who schemed and kind of stole Shakespeare away. Um, And she shows a couple who were truly in love. But at the heart of the story is obviously Hamnet himself and his uh, twin sister Judith and his elder sister Susanna. And she retells the events, uh, tragic events of 1596 in the most beautiful lyrical prose. She has um, a really fresh and immediate way of writing about historical events, I think. And her real strength has always been writing about very intimate family relationships. 
between a mother and her children, between siblings, um, and how it feels to be part of a family. And this is really just outstanding. The scene where Hamnet dies and his body is laid out for burial by his mother is just one of the most powerful scenes I've ever read depicting loss. It really is. And Shakespeare's not mentioned by name at all in the novel, but it is also the story of um, how he became, you know, the greatest playwright the world has ever known and sort of his family foundations. So I know it's not the only historical novel in town this month, but it is a really excellent one and I would very much recommend it to all our listeners. It's wonderful, isn't it? I thought it was so clever the way she didn't name Mm. Shakespeare because, again, just very deftly sidestepped that problem of what you do with the weight of a story that people know Mm. Um, and I just think she as a writer who I have loved Mm. since after you'd gone she just gets more and more interesting with every book doesn't she she does yeah and you know if you're listening and you've never read Maggie O'Farrell before you you know you've got eight to choose from now so yeah get reading because she's just amazing well I wonder what she'll do next yeah it's exciting and what else have you got for us so another very very powerful novel um that I read for March is the latest from Evie Wilde which is called The Bass Rock this is the story of three women across four centuries who are all linked by the fact that they've lived within the shadow um, of the Bass Rock which is just um off the coast of Scotland and it opens with Viv in the present day who's late night shopping uh, in a supermarket in Edinburgh I mean the whole opening chapter just works as a short story standalone it's just stunning but I don't want to go into any spoilers and the next narrative strand we move back to the 1950s and we meet Ruth who's this very kind of brittle self-contained woman who's lost her brother in the war and is still grieving and she's now agreed to marry a widower who lost his wife and become mother to two uh, stepchildren and then we move further back in time to the 17th century where Sarah has been accused of witchcraft and is fleeing her village with a small group so these stories unfold in alternate chapters Um, and I don't know about you Cathy but often when I'm reading sort of multiple narratives there's one I really love and I kind of get annoyed (laughs) when you know that page and I turn the page and I'm back but I loved all three of these Mm. equally they're so vivid and so compelling and the thing that links these lives is really and you you come to realize this quite slowly because she has a, a wonderful light touch as a writer, but it's about women's lives and the violence and control that is levelled against them by mm-hmm. the men in their lives. And sometimes it's sort of hostility and aggression, and sometimes it's rape and murder. And it's written with... I mean, she's such an intelligent writer. Um, it's written with a kind of blistering force. I mean, you as you read it, you're sort of getting yeah, angry. Yeah, a, a very yourself. fast, intense yes. experience, yeah, isn't it? yeah. But there's also hope, and the hope in the novel comes from the sort of solidarity and friendship of other women. This novel, I mean, I read, you know, an awful lot for my job, but this is still as vivid to me as the day I finished it. And I think it's one of those books that will really stay with me, and I think it will provoke a lot of debate. I have heard people mention it as a kind of Me Too novel, but I think it's it's sort of aside from that, you know, when I interviewed her she said she could have written it 10 years ago Mm. it's you know these currents are always with us and she's just sort of I thought it was very uh, I actually also thought it was very good on boys and the Mm. fragility of boys and how vulnerable they are yeah that's very true Cathy and that is a brilliant link into my next book the last one I'm going to talk about which is the latest from James Scudamore English Monsters now James Scudamore he's just adored by critics and other writers um and you know, his reviews are so, so good. Um, it's actually been quite a while since his last one. That was 2013. So this one was really sort of keenly awaited. And it's brilliant. It's really, really good. It opens with 10-year-old Max, who's living a sort of bucolic, wonderful life on his grandfather's farm. And then suddenly, age 10, he's sort of pulled away and sent to this chilly remote boarding school, which is just full of these awful arbitrary rules and all these punishments and you know it's a really horrible environment and it's quite a shock actually a couple of chapters in you suddenly realize it's the 1980s I mean I was at school in Mm -hmm. the 1980s and you when you start you're sort of thinking this is you know way way back when but also as well as being about the sort of brutality of boarding school it's about the friendships of the young boys Um, and this was the first time in a long time I think that I've read a novel about 
the friendships of young boys and the kind of camaraderie and how they sort of stick together against these awful um, masters. And then the novel goes on and it spans several decades. And these friendships that Max made at boarding school endure into adulthood. And then he gradually realises that some of the boys were enduring something which was much worse than just being beaten um, by the masters. So on the one hand, it's a sort of very disturbing novel about the brutality of the English boarding school system. But on the other hand, it's a really moving study of male friendship. Lovely. Thank you. Caroline, let's get all non-fiction, please. What have you got for us? Well, I'm going to start off by saying I don't know much about history. <laughs> um, picking up on the, the um, Hilary Mantel, picking up on Maggie O'Farrell there. I, yes, my knowledge of history is quite ropey at times. I didn't study it to any level at school. But I think this has given me a sort of abiding thirst for books which contextualise history, especially those that give us a um, give us a particular lens through which to understand a great sweep of time. So I've got two books this month which I think do that wonderfully well. The first one is House of Glass, The Story and Secrets of a 20th Century Jewish Family by Hadley Freeman. And this is, it's utterly marvellous work of family history, really. It it took Hadley Freeman about 20 years to research and write this book. And it was prompted by finding at the back of her late grandmother Salah's wardrobe in Florida, a shoebox and her grandmother was wonderfully glamorous. She was French, she she always dressed Im- impeccably and she thought she was going to find just another pair of glamorous shoes in this box. But what she found was some of her most treasured belongings and they sparked her to go and investigate more about her grandmother Salah and her three siblings, three brothers and their lives. And this is the story that she tells in this book. And the sweep of history is astonishing, really. So the the siblings were born in the early 20th century in uh, Poland, very close to the town of Auschwitz. Uh, And then they left after the First World War because of the pogroms that were going on and Jews were being persecuted. So they left and made their way to Paris. And they made uh, made their lives in Paris and they were doing very, very well. But then, of course, the Second World War came and the Nazi invasion of France and occupation of Paris. So they were sort of, you know, having escaped one place of persecution, they were then in another. And it's the story of what happened to those four siblings and particularly the incredibly moving story of her grandmother. Because although the stories of all three brothers are extraordinary, she is the one who, in a way, paid the biggest price, but but she escaped. I mean, she escaped America, and I won't spoil how that happened, but was sort of then doomed to live out the rest of her life in America, away from her brothers and away from the life that she loved in Paris. So... It's just wonderful. And I read an, a piece that Hadley Freeman wrote for The Guardian, which is, of course, the paper that she normally writes for. And she said, for decades, I ran away from this story. Who would be interested in reading about grandma? But it just it just shows you that just through the story of one family, you know, you get you get this understanding of history. And not only that, you know, there are there are sort of sobering echoes of, of things that we see happening today in this book too, in terms of the rise of anti-Semitism and so on. But it's just, it's just glamorous, it's gripping, it's page turning. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I learnt so much from it as well. It's so interesting the way that often memoirists will say, oh, I just didn't think it was interesting. <laughs> and you look at the story, you think, how did you... How did you not know? But I think when it's your own stuff, you just don't think it's going to be. A lot of these things were the things that they didn't talk about. So mm. growing up, you know, they would they were just you sort of her great great uncles and her grandmother. But you know, when you start to tease apart the lives that these people had before they were your grandparents, you know, it's. Uh, Extraordinary book. Extraordinary book. Um, the second book is completely different, but sort of does a similar job in some ways, I think. It's called The Stonemason, A History of Building Britain by Andrew Zeminski. It's his first book after a 30-year career as a journeyman stonemason. And he's worked on some of um, our most beloved buildings um, and heritage sites, Stonehenge, the Roman Baths in Bath, Salisbury Cathedral and St Paul's. And it's very much a hands-on history of building Britain. And being a stonemason himself, he gives these wonderful personal insights into what's a really ancient craft, the lives of craftspeople of yesteryear. And I'm, I say craftspeople advisedly because there were stone masons who were female as well. And their legacies is still all around us in, the, in these buildings that we see. 
And I was lucky enough to go and interview Andrew in his workshop in Froome and I had a go at stone carving myself. I, I must say it's something I could get quite quite hooked on. <laughs> did, how did it work? Did you make something? or did I you was just... just chipping away along the sort of yeah. outline of it. It was a rather sinuous woman that he was carving out a bath stone for a celebrity client that I'm not allowed to, to name. But uh, yeah, I had a little go at that chipping away. But um, it really brings history alive. And I love his story as well because he'd never written anything before this book. Um, he left school without any qualifications. He, he, he didn't think he should write it because he said working people don't write books. Mm. And in a way, it's a different kind of diversity, isn't it? I love the fact that somebody who's just been a sort of hands-on craftsperson um, all his life has now crafted this, this wonderful thing in words. I love the image of you, Caroline, working away at your stone masonry. Well, I don't think... I think mine was anything to to shout about, but if you look at the cover of this beautiful book, it has a carving of Andrew Siminski's Whippet, who was present throughout our interview, and it's a really, really beautiful carving that he did specifically for the cover of the book. Lovely. And one more, I think, you've got for us? One more, yes. As March brings us Mother's Day, I thought I would like to mention the best, most awful job 20 writers talk honestly about motherhood. And this is an anthology edited by Catherine May. Um, It's 20 honest and very opinionated essays about what it means to be a mother and sort of seeking to broaden the conversation really about what a complex job it can be, whether you're a step parent or or a single parent or how other things might affect our perceptions of motherhood, class, sexual orientation, whatever it might be. So that's uh, a book that shows us that motherhood is about more than a box of milk tray and a bunch of dafts. Oh, on Mother's Day, yeah. I hate all those um, those boardings go outside restaurants, you know, free glass of Prosecco for mum. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a big subject, isn't it? I will restrain myself from jumping into the subject of motherhood. I think also you enjoyed oh, I must just say, Broken yes. Greek by Perfides. I loved um, I loved that memoir. Um, it's, a, it's a glorious coming-of-age memoir with uh, salt and vinegar added. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Now, the biggest publication this month, very possibly this year, very possibly this decade, is The Mirror and the Light, the third in Hilary Mantel's trilogy about Henry VIII's advisor Thomas Cromwell. And her editor, Nicholas Pearson, is joining us today. Nick, take us right back to the beginning. Why did you want to work in publishing? I'm quite interested to read that Evie Wilde novel, actually, because I, I too used to live in the shadow of the Bass Rock when I was at university in Scotland. And while there, I was involved in a poetry festival. That put me in touch with a poet called Christopher Reid, who came up and did a poetry reading up in St Andrews. And I asked him afterwards what he did for a living other than writing his poems. And he told me he worked at Faber and Faber. And I asked him a load of questions. And I literally went to the careers library the next day and looked up P for publishing and thought, well, perhaps I could do this. I was doing an English degree. So it really started there with that meeting with Christopher Reid. Mm-hmm. And I came to London and I found a man who needed a secretary, an editor who needed a secretary. And this was back in the late 80s and no one could type. So I went and did a touch typing course in Covent Garden for two weeks. I'm a, it's the only skill I've got. I'm a very, very good touch typist. And became um, a secretary at the Bodley Head, um, as it then was. Um, and there's a nice sort of circle to this story because a few years later I found myself working as an editor at Faber and Faber with Christopher Reid, who was by then the poetry editor. Mm-hmm. So that's how it began for me. Tell us some of the... I mean, what do you like? What do you not like? Oh, I know I'm asking you to summarise a few decades Gosh, in a question. Well, I should be able to answer that very easily. I, I know I'd never, as a, I'm asked that question a lot. I never know what I'm looking for. I Don't just, you? No. No, I'm just looking to be transported. Tell us how it works then. Agents send you manuscripts yep. these days. Oh, I just read them and it's no secret. I just read them or read as much as I can of them. <laughs> and... I'm just looking to be transported and, and then think, well, OK, if I'm transported, can this transport other people? And then the conversation begins there with, with colleagues. and yeah. Because you have to then persuade other people to acquire the book. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's not just me. <laughs> That's just the beginning, yeah. So, as a reader, I've been enthralled to Hilary Mantel's portrayal of Thomas Cromwell since picking up a copy of Wolf Hall in my local library when I was on maternity leave in 2009. Right. Uh, I know I'm not alone yeah. in it. Um, and it is, it's, the, it's the book I've 
been looking forward to most. I dream, I've been dreaming about it for years. I used to dream it was, I once dreamed it was delivered to me in a golden coffin. Oh, blimey. <laughs> I know, such yeah, is the power. On. She, she right. meshes into your mind, I mm. think. Um, I wondered, would you give us your perspective as the editor? When did you know that Mantel's Cromwell was coming to you? I became Hillary's editor in the, I don't know, 2002, 2003, something like that. And actually, I looked at an email the other day that she sent me in September 2005, which had attached to it what became the first 20-odd pages of Wolf Hall with those great first words, so now get Mm. up, which is quite a good message to an editor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's where it all began. And I read those pages and, I mean, what was there to say other than crack on, Hillary? So that's where it all began And then a few years later, I got a message from Hillary that she had, whatever it was, 220,000 words done and Thomas More's head had just come off. But she thought this was a a novel in itself. Would I read it? So I read that and, I mean, the rest is history. Um, It's been an absolutely incredible experience for all of us at Fourth Mm -hmm. Estate and a real privilege and an honour to be involved in a piece of publishing like this. It's been truly thrilling. Mm. It was intended as one book and now it's a trilogy and the first two have won the Booker Prize and they found this readership that they deserve. It's, it's just, it's, it's amazing. It's that, isn't it, really, books? Because I think when you work in books, you, you love an awful lot of books. You want yeah. books to find their readers. Yeah. And actually, they rarely do, do they? they they're not as much as you want them to. And they, but in this case, it's the, it, you have readers galore. My career is a long line of <laughs> disappointments of books that I've really cherished and loved and would um, uh, and would dearly have loved to have found bigger readerships than they've found, many of them. You just do your best. Because when something like this happens, I mean, that's really, that's really thrilling. Tell us how the editorial relationship works. It's one of encouragement and um, a sounding board occasionally, but, I mean, she's an absolute master. There's uh, no intervention from me, and I'm not alone at Fourth State. We hope we, we we're the support that she's needed over these last 15 years. I think we I think we have been, mm-hmm. and I'm very fond of her. I've become very very fond of her over this time. Two or three weeks ago, I went down to the printers to see this book on the binding line. I hadn't been to the printer since 1990. And it was a wonderful experience seeing this book in various states of undress piled up on pallets all around this factory and the jacket being wrapped round it. And I thought back then to that email in 2005 and here we are. Here we towards are. Towards the end of the it's journey. It's magical. And it's a beautiful object. It's massive, isn't it? With a, yeah. Presumably it's longer than Wolf Hall. Oh, yeah. Is it longer than Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies put together? Uh, not quite. Yeah. I think it's sort of Wolf Hall and, and a half. And it has a beautiful cover and the end papers. I think this is Traitor's Gate, isn't it? Yes, it is. Glad you like it, Cathy. I do. I like it very, very, Seal of very, approval. very much. Yes, a piece of high excitement for me and all sorts of readers. Tell me, as an editor, when does your job end on a book, or or does it? When you're at the printers, is that it, or does it carry on? It is certainly the case that once the book has got to the printers, the bulk of your job as an editor is done. But you're working with a team of people and with a publication like this. You know, we've been having meetings every two weeks for months and months and months just specifically about this book and there's an awful lot of planning and thought and and consideration that's gone into everything and there'll be a paper bag and I'm involved in that team of people but I have I work with some with some great people and then at some point will she send you another email saying (laughs) or maybe she's already sent it I've been thinking I've been interested in this lately. What do you think? That, that, is, the, that is the hope. That is the hope. Um, do you know yeah. what I do at the moment when I wake up in the night? Tell I me. think about what I would like Hilary Mantel to write her next trilogy of novels about. Perhaps we should do a listener poll. Catherine de Medici is my suggestion. Oh, crikey, all right. Well, Don't you think that would be brilliant? <laughs> I'll have a word, Cathy. Well, what you I Because I, I reread A Place of Greater Safety mm-hmm. recently, the mm-hmm. French Revolution novel, and I think one of the things that she does amazingly in this trilogy mm-hmm. as well, she does the European stuff so well, doesn't she? Oh, yeah. So she has the, so she sort of nails the what you feel is the English stuff, but also the European awareness. Well, which comes together in the character of Cromwell himself, mm-hmm. who is... The ultimate European. The ultimate European, yeah. So I thought her doing Catherine de Medici would be great. Right, okay. So, there you go. I'll That's my word. request. And then mm. you can come back and talk to us about it on the podcast in about six years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
Hillary's a wonderful publishing story, though, isn't she? Because her first, you know, it took a long time, a lot of writing for her books to break out and be a success, and for her to find that audience that Kathy referred to, that she'd been, you know, wanting to find for a long time. I mean, it's, is that great when something like that finally happens? Oh yeah, I mean, it's been much um, written about, but she couldn't find a publisher for that first novel. Mm. A Place of Greater Safety was, in fact, published second. And when she came to with the first book of hers we published was The Giant O'Brien, wonderful book. I don't know if you've read it. It really is a terrific novel. And the readership was still very modest. And things began to change with Beyond Black. Mm-hmm. Um, things went up a gear in terms of finding an audience and sales and then bingo. <laughs> and uh, does that validate what you do and what Fourth Estate does as a business, which doesn't always have to be commercial but clearly needs to wash its face? Well, we like to think that we're publishing writers not books. And this isn't always the case, but we, you know, we try and support writers as best we can over careers that have their ups and downs. Mm. And that's what we try to do. It's not easy, <laughs> but when something like this comes to fruition, that's, that's great. And it's the complete opposite from what everyone says publishing is about these days, where, where they're complaining with the Simon Cowell deal that it's all about money. And it's, you know, it's just not, not quite, always anyway. Quite keen on, on animal books. <laughs> I published Me Cheetah. Do you remember that? Do I was at the that? launch party for Me were Cheetah. You? Yeah, at London Zoo. You were there at I London Zoo? I was there at London Zoo, yeah. Oh, Back in all... the time. I had a banana in my top pocket, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> that, was, uh, that was a lot of fun. I mean, that was an idea I had, actually. I sort of love and hate the celebrity memoir genre, and I thought my revenge on it would be to publish the autobiography of Cheetah the Chimp from the Tarzan movies. And I intended it as a piece of Christmas fun. <laughs> and this fella came in and pitched some, some sports ideas to me, which were, were, I mean, I'm a big sports lover, but I wasn't really very interested in them. And I tossed him the idea of doing me Cheetah. And that man was James Lever. And he went away and wrote what I think is one of the best comic novels that's been published in this country for years and years and years. Um, uh, it was, that was a lot of fun. So your career, Nick, has many highlights, including Me Cheetah. <laughs> what would you say, when you're on your deathbed, this is, yeah. what I, this is the other thing I think about in the night, um, when you're on your deathbed, what do you think you will remember from your career? What will you look um, back? Hopefully in many decades when you've had lots more successes, but at the moment, what would stand out to you? I've just really enjoyed the close proximity I've had to some incredible writers. I became Doris Lessing's editor towards the end of her writing life, and that was a real privilege too. I published Lorna Sage's Bad Blood a long time, well, 20 years ago now, and that was, that was something very special for me. Publishing has been, I've been so lucky. It's been so good to me. I'm sort of clinging on by my, by, by my <laughs> fingernails um, at, at this stage. But um, it's really enriched my life in all sorts of strange ways. Um, it's been a very sort of happy 20, 30 years or whatever, whatever it is <laughs> now. Thank you for coming to talk to us about it. And I mean, all those good books. One of the things I think when people get wound up about things like the Simon Cowell book deal, what I really think is like, either buy that book or go and read some of the other really amazing books there are. Yeah, or just open your eyes to all of the amazing books and people that are working, publishing and publishing those books. Because it really is, as Nick suggests, a very, very rich and enriching sector. And I know it doesn't work out for everybody, but it does work out for an awful lot of people an awful lot of writers and illustrators and we should be you know we should celebrate that absolutely i agree well thank you nick for coming to talk to us about the lows and highs of your (laughs) career um and there are so many good books coming out in march there are so many good books that we've discussed that came out in other months so perhaps anybody who rather than feeling cross on twitter about book deals they don't like they could actually just don't get cross on twitter uh go and read some of the very good books that already exist yeah thank you very much everyone for coming and talking to me about everything that's happening in march thank you thank you thank you and now we're joined by pete perfides whose memoir broken greek is utterly beautiful i loved it and i laughed and i cried pete thank you for coming in thank you so much it's a privilege to be here thank you tell us i mean oh there's so much going on in this book i was really struck 
probably from the beginning, about of the portrayal of your parents. Uh, mm. Tell us about your mum, a war baby. She was a war baby. She was born in Athens during World War Two, and uh, at a time sort of enormous poverty, really. And uh, things were sort of very hard for them. They they had their house sort of ransacked uh, by invading forces, and there was this very strange period where some Nazi um, soldiers occupied the house across the road. So it was a bit touch and go for her for a long time. And she was the youngest of three children, and she had to go and sort of forage for food because she was able to sort of get under railings and things like that. So it was. It was tough for them at first, and um, but in many ways it carried on being tough for her for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And tell us about how they decided to come to England, your parents. Randomly, almost. Uh, I think there were a lot of people in the late fifties and early sixties uh, from abroad who there was a sort of perception that you could move over here because everyone was hiring anyway, and get a job fairly quickly and you know, have a few years of really hard work, you know, saving up money to sort of start the life you really wanted to live back in your mother country. And for a lot of people, it didn't really happen. But my parents, so my parents decided fairly randomly. My father knew someone in the British army in Cyprus. So my father's from Cyprus, my mother's from Greece. And he knew someone in the army who um, who said, well, I know, I know someone in Birmingham. Maybe you could live in Birmingham. Uh, and my father said it was all the same to him: Birmingham, London, Manchester, Glasgow, whatever. And um, he said, "Okay, yeah, so we'll just go to Birmingham then." And uh, because, of course, there was no internet, then you couldn't really research terribly well what would be a good place to live in. So you threw yourself open to fortune, and they ended up in Birmingham. And a few years later, they opened up a chip shop. Um, you had a teenage teenage my a sort of childminder person called Sandy. Um, I wanted to tell you I was a teenage minder of a boy in a chip shop. Were you? <laughs> yeah, <I was. laughs> Where was this? This was in Yorkshire and it would have been a few years later because I'm a little bit younger than you I think. I was born in 73 mm. so by the time I was minding him it would just be a few years out but um, I think everyone roughly our age and especially who probably didn't grow up in London you know because obviously it always feels that all books are about London. Yeah. I think people that grew up somewhere else Mm. Are, are, are going to read this book and just sort of love the references. I'd also completely forgotten about Diodora. <laughs> uh, what, the brand? The Deodora. brand, sp- the sports. <laughs> I, so yes. reading your book is this kind of, it just kept pinging off in my head, all this <laughs> stuff I'd forgotten about. Yeah, so yeah, the the reason I mentioned the brand Diodora is there was, there was a real sort of uh, certain brands of sports bag or sports gear had more currency amongst teenage boys than other ones. And if at the beginning of the of the school year you turned up at school with a brand new Deodora bag, that was pretty good. That was quite exotic. That was quite continental. Uh, Adidas was a very safe bet. Uh, Nike hadn't really got going at that point, so that was out of the picture. And then lower down the food chain, you had Buckter. Not so good. And the worst of all was, I think, the Arsenal goalkeeper, Pat Jennings, had a brand of bags. <laughs> and that was to be avoided at all costs. You'd really failed if you had a Pat Jennings bag. Tell us about Dial-A-Disc. Dial-A-Disc. Dial-A-Disc was really the catalyst for my intense lifelong adoration uh, for for music, for pop music. And there was a... So again, I tried to explain the concept of Dial-A-Disc to my children a while ago, and they looked at me like I was 10,000 years old. Uh, so... You know, there wasn't so much music available in the early 70s and and British Telecom ran a phone service whereby you could call a three-digit number and listen to a record that was currently in the charts uh, playing on the other end of the receiver. And it was a different record every day. They would select a different record. And sometimes as a treat, my mum would give me some two-pence coins and because it, I was discouraged from using the phone for such purposes at home. So, and so I'd go to the phone box outside the shop with my five, typically five two-pence pieces and uh, I'd listen to a chart record on a phone. And that, weirdly enough, that seemed like the biggest treat in the world. And so that was when I first heard Sugar Baby Love by the Rubettes. And, you know, it, and my world was turned upside down by that and many other records after that. And the book opens uh, with a trip to the child psychologists mm. because tell us about why you needed to, why that trip was happening. 
I think the term is selective mute, although uh, up until a few years ago, at the time, I would have been referred to as an elective mute. So that's what I've gone for in the book. We were all set to move to Cyprus. Uh, and then the, the Turkish invasion, the partition of the island took place. And it was too dangerous to continue with that plan. Uh, my paternal grandparents lost their home. Uh, and, and anyway, so we had to stay. And after a very long idyllic summer in Cyprus, where really, I, I, in my head, we were never going to leave again, I was just sort of parachuted into this brand new infant school, two weeks into the new term, I think. And it, I just stopped talking. And I would still talk to my parents when there was no one around, mm -hmm. and my brother. Uh, but I didn't talk to any, any of the other school children or any other adults, apart from a teachers when no one was listening. I wouldn't talk for three more years. So I think it was some kind of, I don't know, some, some kind of profound discombobulation mm -hmm. that silenced me. Your brother, uh, I love the portrait of you and your brother in the book. He had a helpful role, didn't he, in persuading you to speak again? He did. And, I, you know, I, I sort of think in many ways my brother is sort of the hero of the story. And, um, you know, my mum... And I say my mum specifically because, you know, in that time, and certainly amongst parents from where my parents were from, it wasn't really the role. Sort of a pastoral care was not the role of the dad. <laughs> uh, so it was really, it was kind of my mum's job to really kind of stop me being weird. And, and you know, she dealt with it very well. She was very protective of me, but some days it just got a bit too much for her. And, you know, one day where she sort of tried to persuade me to talk, I think that maybe there was an errand I had to run uh, which involved talking to adults, and I couldn't. That filled me with terror, so I'd, I couldn't do it. And she sort of lost her temper a little bit, and uh, and she was upset. You know, I was upset that she was upset. She was sort of crying, and she removed herself from the room, went back into the shop. It was a busy evening in the shop. And then my brother stepped in. He was four years older than me, so he would have been 11 or 12 at the time. And he just said, look, why don't you just try talking to one person without anyone being around and he sort of he he challenged me to go around the corner from our house and, and knock on the door of a boy that we sometimes played with and he said no one else will know if it feels weird you never need to talk here if you if you bottle it when he opens the door, the door well he's not expecting you to talk anyway so it's fine and if you can just do that don't worry about anything else if you can just do that then maybe you might feel like talking at school tomorrow. And that was the thing where, where psychologists and my parents didn't manage to get a result. My 11-year-old brother sort of stepped in and got me to do it. Um, you say at one point during the book that you, um, you're the worst Greek. You're the worst <laughs> Greek you, you knew. Tell us a bit about that. It felt almost like a skill to me to follow in the footsteps of your parents, to really want to marry a Greek girl when the time came, to be confident around other Greeks, to be able to hold forth like a young adult. Because I would often see other Greek Cypriot kids who were able to do that and felt like I was sort of underperforming in, in that role. There were other Greek Cypriot kids who were, and they all, all their parents had fish and chip shops. And they all seemed to be really happy about the fact that they were going to take over the fish and chip shop one day. And I was not happy about that. Because to be honest, my parents weren't really a very good advert for it. They, it kind of made them miserable. They did, that's not what they wanted to do. And the carrot of financial security uh, being dangled in front of you in exchange for sort of sacrificing your life to long hours in a fish and chip shop just was not doing it for me. And uh, so it's in that sense, just culturally I felt, and because... Pop music gave me this identity that was inevitably more of a British identity. My friends were Brit, my favourite TV programmes were Brit. All these contributed to a sense of me feeling like I was kind of failing at being Greek. Mm -hmm. Do you feel reconciled now or does it continue to resonate? Yeah, I feel a bit more Greek now. That, I mean, it is what it is now. You know, you, you, you come to an accommodation with all sorts of things when you grow up. I, I have a profound appreciation of how difficult it was for my parents. I feel that they could have really forced certain situations upon me and my brother that they chose not to. And the reason they chose not to was purely out of love and compassion. So I'm very grateful to them for that. And I think the danger for parents like mine is that you might turn into something completely alien and you might repudiate your traditions. And you don't, you know, you might not take them all on, but you are essentially the child that they raised. Mm -hmm. And 
you give you give your kids that respect. You respect them as adults, and you respect them for what they did for you. And so it's it's kind of good now, I've got to say. Do you like fish and chips? Yeah, I do. You never get tired of fish yeah. and chips. Part of my pay used to be when I was looking after the little boy in the chip shop. <laughs> <laughs> I used to get a pound an hour and a fish and chips supper. <laughs> and did you always choose fish and chips, or would you sometimes divert? Oh, I'm I'm a I'm a, I'm a tart in a chip shop I, I like a wide range of stuff okay um, yeah, and these days tricky. what would be your default order uh, fish and chips and I live in Cornwall these days which is very good oh, wow. fish and chips and I do think I think London fish and chips are pretty ropey in general yeah so definitely a, a mixed bag but so do you so we do, what do you do do you sort of finish your work in London and then get get on the sleeper train I do I'm getting the sleeper train tonight oh, that's my, it's my wonderful. favourite thing and do you ever get bored of it I don't get bored of it, no. But my husband, who's very tall, I'm I'm about five foot seven, and I love the sleeper train. And then my husband and son took it once on their own, and I've been going on about how great it is. And my husband's about six foot two, and he found it a terrifying experience. I, I, really I can see that's understandable. <laughs> I will take it. I will take any excuse to go on the sleeper train. So if there are any any booksellers in Penzance or somewhere oh, like what that a good idea. that want me to do a thing, uh, I'll do it in exchange for a sleeper berth. Yes, and then I can come and interview him and then we can all have fish and chips afterwards. That would be so good, wouldn't it? That wouldn't that be great? sublime. Now tell me, um, I love this book so much. The bit, um, and I know I think people are going to laugh and find, uh, recognise themselves in it, um, probably cry. And look, I'm starting to well up already. Shall I tell you the bit that made me cry? Well, if you can. The bit when you're doing the Christmas decorations with your brother. <laughs> that destroyed me. <laughs> it's just so beautiful. And I'm just reading along thinking, this is nice, this is nice, this is nice. And then I'm just blubbing blubbing oh, like a bless fool bless you thank you so but, um, much that's you know that's that's obviously in excess of your wildest expectations as, as some as a writer to to be able to elicit any reaction close to that so that's um what amazing. does it feel like to have it out in the world i'm a bit sort of scared at the moment really i'm mm. a bit um i i it sits in the corner of the room looking at me uh and um i'm almost too scared to open it because it's too late to do anything about it now yeah but um you know, I wrote this book without... I didn't look for a publisher when I wrote it. I just wrote it um, and didn't even know if I would finish it. And I had very modest <laughs> expectations, to put it mildly. I was too scared to call it a book for the first year. And so every time I'd come home, my wife would say, so what you been, What have you been working on today? And I'd say, oh, so I'm just this, this thing that may or may not be a book. I'm just kind of... And uh, so this is just, it's not even out, and I, I feel like a competition winner, to be honest. Oh, well, that's lovely. Well, I think people are going to love it. I think you're going to find lots of readers. Thank you. And thank you for coming to talk to us about it. It's, a, it's an absolute privilege. Thank you so much, Cathy. How lovely it was to speak to Pete Perfides. What a very nice man. And now um, on to another very nice man. It's time to talk to Robert Webb. Robert Webb is an actor best known for his work as the web half of That Mitchell and Webb Look and as Jeremy in Peep Show. In 2017, his memoir, How Not to Be a Boy, was a number one Sunday Times bestseller and he's now turned his hand to fiction. Robert, what made you decide to write a novel? Hello. Uh, well, the short answer is it was a two-book deal. <laughs> Um, but the more considered answer, I mean, the, actually, the idea for this story came to me before the idea of doing a sort of masculinity based memoir. Um, but then How Not to Be a Boy sort of overtook me somehow. It seemed like the urgent thing to do. I think I also wanted to, if you like, get the memoir out of the way so that, you know, the first novel wouldn't be hopelessly autobiographical. So this, these days, when people say, is it how autobiographical is it? I've got an actual autobiography to point to and go, if that's what you want, look, step this way. Um, so. The memoir happened first because it, it just seemed like the book that needed to get written first. And now I can go back to the story, which I, I think I, the idea came to me in about 2014. I think I was, I was filming Peep Show one day and um, I was looking at Twitter. Sorry, you didn't ask this question, but I just, just seem to be go talking for it, now. Go for it. <laughs> I was just looking at Twitter and a very nice man called Nigel Cole, who directed a film that I'd just been in called The Wedding Video, said, I'm looking for new ideas for scripts to do. And have you got one? And I sort of, unfocused my eyes and stared into the middle distance and uh, Kate Marston sort of appeared to me um, very weirdly. Yeah. That will never happen again. Kate Marston. I mean, she's she's very nearly me, I have to tell you. Oh, good. That's yeah. a good sign. So, she, I mean, I'm called Cathy. She's called Kate. She um, gets, starts at York University in 1992 and I started at Leeds University in 1992. I, my, my research was very deep. <laughs> <laughs> Tell 
us about the tell us about the setup for the novel because when we meet Kate, she's not in a happy place. She's she? in a terrible place. Um, so Kate is our heroine. Uh, she's about forty five years old. Uh, she's a widow. She lost her husband Luke about nine months ago. She's not doing at all well. She's not getting better. They met when they were very young. They met at college when they were teenagers. One day, Kate wakes up. She's eighteen years old. She remembers everything. Uh, it's fresh as week. She's in her college room at the University of York. This is the week. In fact, this is the day that she met Luke for the first time. Uh, she knows how he died, so she thinks she needs to warn him. So she thinks she needs to earn his trust. So she thinks instead of doing everything differently, she's going to do everything exactly the same. Hence comedy. Um, but, you know, he is not the middle-aged man that she lost. Uh, he is the annoying 19-year-old English student that she first met. Was it fun? I did enjoy all the details of 1992, down yeah. to the fact that there are no automated ticket barriers at train stations. <laughs> I think that's the only thing that got me across London. Otherwise, <laughs> I couldn't. I would have been walking everywhere. Was it fun to imagine yourself back? To you know, to think back to 1992. How did you get back to 1992? It's a combination of sort of memory and uh, yeah, I did cheat every now and again, definitely, or research as it's known. Uh, I would, you know, I talk to people and I. You know, Google image searches. So what were we wearing in 1992? And uh, so, you know, bits and bobs like that, and what was in the charts and films. But of course, you remember. You know, it's not by accident that it's set exactly when during my first year at university. So I, I have some quite. That was quite a big. Yeah, I mean, you know, these are formative sort of moments, aren't they? And so, you know, a lot of that stuff has planted itself very firmly in my memory. But um, but that was fun. But I suppose the, the book is a bit interested in in the limits of nostalgia and even the dangers of nostalgia as well as the enjoyment of it. So, um, you know, it wasn't all marvellous. I mean, my memory of 1992 as a student was I had a really good time. But there again, I also had my heart broken a couple of times. And it was, you know, you know what it's like when you're that age. I mean, mm -hmm. everything's the best thing ever or the worst thing that's ever happened. But in, in terms of the sort of wider community, I remember it being a tremendously dull time. I mean, we'd had two years of John Major, another five years to go. Um, I sort of look back on that now as a golden age of total boredom. You know, it was it was yeah. all wrong, but it wasn't disastrously wrong. Um, so, you know, and it was, you know, it, you know that thing about um, may you not live in interesting times. It certainly wasn't interesting. And I think we were better off for being <laughs> less interesting. Uh, Kate's the daughter of a black cab driver. Mm -hmm. And she's uh, also a black belt in karate. Yes, indeed. I think. And there's a great, I mean, there's, it's, it's great fun, the book, and there's a great sort of uh, enjoyable adventure element. Adventure is the word, yes. I mean, it. There were times when I thought, oh, this is quite a quiet and thoughtful book about love and grief and memory. And then at other times I realised, you know, I've just written a car chase and a, <laughs> and a punch up. Um, it is a romp and a lark. You know, it is unashamedly there to be enjoyable and entertaining. Mm -hmm. And did you enjoy creating a, a character? I mean, I did, as I was reading it, pondering the similarities and differences uh, between me and Kate, I would are you really, not a black belt, Kathy? I'm not a black belt oh, in karate, okay. and I felt really sad about that. <laughs> and I just thought that it must be fun creating a fictional character who can kick the shit out of people, unless that yeah. bit is autobiographical. I don't know. Of it's course. definitely a fantasy of my. You know, you, <laughs> I definitely I get to kick the shit out of people through <laughs> through my made up character. Um, yeah, she definitely uses her powers for good. It gets quite broad in places, but it, yes, it was. It's an escape in some ways, and then other times it's. It's reasonably considered, but um, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's several different genres having a fight in the same book. I don't know whether <laughs> I've pulled it off. Or, I, mean, I think I hope the reader will have fun watching me try. Anyway, well, I certainly had fun reading it. And Kate is always trying to do the right thing, isn't she? And pondering on what the right thing is, which is also she's very self-critical. Yeah, um, without without being self-loathing. Mm -hmm. um, I hope. How did you actually get the writing done? Presumably you're busy with other things. <laughs> I still Do you have don't a routine? Know. <laughs> I still don't really understand. Um, just sort of crying for two years, really. <laughs> uh, I wasn't that busy with other things because I made some room for it, really. Um, I don't know. I had the idea and, and there it was. There was sort of half a page that Canon Gate had you know, said, yes, we'd like to see this made into a book please and uh, it was odd because the, the first time around with the memoir I'd I'd given myself a massive head start I'd written the first two chapters and planned out the rest of the book before I let any publishers see it mm -hmm. so I had a, a whole load of stuff to work from this time I had you know three paragraphs and occasionally though I'd make a sort of howl of anguish on Twitter 
and other writers and indeed non-writers would say, oh, just do it, just do it, just write it, just write the first draft, it doesn't have to be any good, just write it. And I'm like, just write what? I mean, you write it, I don't know any more than you what happens, why don't you write the flipping thing? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, eventually I did the sensible thing and came up with an ending and then what has to happen in the middle and then it was a question of joining those things up in, in the most delightful way I could. And do you have a routine? Do you do you have a particular time of the day? Do you have a particular place? How does Not all that really. work? I mean, I read those my writer's day things mm. in the Sunday supplements, and my heart sinks. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> I, raise, I, I rise at five thirty a.m. and have some quinoa and some fat-free yogurt, and then I do yoga for an hour, and then I write for six hours. You know, I'm marginally sharper in the morning. That's it, really. <laughs> uh, and some some days are better than others, and. Yes, you do have to just sit there until something happens. And I love what Philip Pullman said. The muse won't always visit you, but you have to be in. Mm-hmm. And you have to be sitting at your desk just in case. So, I yeah, that sounds very... <laughs> I'm full of sensible sounding advice. I'm not sure if I do any of it. And is it very... Di- I mean, the difference between acting and writing, are there are there similarities or does it does it come from a completely different place for you? Ooh, that's a horribly good question. I mean, in terms of what the day is like, they couldn't be more different because, you know, writing is entirely solitary and you've got a a long deadline. This is a long-term thing. Whereas acting, there is lots of sociability, indeed forced sociability. I mean, you've got to be nice. (laughs) It's part of your job that you're nice to everyone. Uh, If you can imagine anything more horrific. Uh, So that's why we're all constantly calling each other darling because we've got to spend all day with each other. Um, so, uh, no, I, and I do, I, I do like acting as well, but, but artistically, I suppose you're, you're in, it's always the same question. It's not so much what would this character do as what would I do if I were this character? And that sounds like a nice distinction, but there's actually quite a big difference and I, which I'm, I'm going to fail to explain, but when I'm sort of imagining what, what would my characters in, in the story do it's quite often what would I do if I came from this background and if I was like this and if I you know and here's the evidence that a bit like an English student sort of looking at the text for what what do we know about Kate so far that that might tell us what she would do next and um and also it's much more instinctive than that at other times as well so it's as as you can hear I've I've no idea I felt that made quite a lot of sense are you possibly saying that you just think yourself into the shoes of your character and that's then kind let of it. the that's action kind of it. flow I mean with, with with acting it's much easier because you know the writer's done all of the hard work and it's really just a question of you've got to find a certain attitude for for the whole performance but but certainly for this line if it's comedy there'll be an inflection that makes a big difference between whether the line whether you get a laugh at the end of it or whether it's just said the words I mean with Jeremy and Peep Show who on paper is a deeply unpleasant guy I mean he's not a nice man at all you know there are ways of saying those lines that that would just be unpleasant and you just wouldn't want to watch the guy whereas you know my job is to to find that little inflection or that little turn or something that I'm doing that that brings out the the comedy in it Mm -hmm. um so really, you know, it's so much. E- I mean, don't tell anyone, but acting is so much easier because you know <laughs> someone else has done all the work, and really, you just have to stand in the right place and say the lines as if you've just thought of them. Um, anyone says it's more complicated than that is making a bit of a meal of it, in my opinion. Well, I think writers like being told that writing is hard. <laughs> we like other people to know and notice. So, yeah. uh, so that's great. Obviously, you've um, it's not your first book. Your memoir was huge. You were on the road with it a lot, festivals, bookshops, etc. Mm. Are you going to do that again? Do you Absolutely. enjoy that, getting out in the world with a book? I do, I do. In fact, I think I've spent two years looking forward to this bit, mm-hmm. actually, of, of being you know, in the smug position of having written an actual book there were times I just didn't believe that would ever happen again. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I like getting out there and talking to the audience. And um, uh, I think I'd go I'd go spare if I didn't know that was coming. Um, so I'm very spoilt like that because, I, you know, I knew I had a deal. I knew it was going to get made into a book. So, you know, most people write on spec and I, my heart goes out to them. It's a great feeling. Um, well, I find it a great feeling to finish a book. Yes. It, and it's my favourite part of the process. Is is it yours or do you have another bit that you particularly like? What do you like best about the whole merry shebang? I'll go with the finishing. I mean, that's got to be up there um, in that kind of... Just the 
letting go of the responsibility, going, this is not my problem anymore. There's mm-hmm. nothing I can do. It's finished. It's in the hands of the readers and it's nothing to do with me. And if they like it, that's great. And if they don't, then I'll blame Canongate. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, that's fine. And it's nothing to do. Yeah, being able to put down that heavy bag after after a long time is is definitely a good bit. But I mean, the writing itself, there are, let's not be too doom and gloom, There there are moments where it's just terrific and you're, and you're, you feel you're flying, and you've. Re- I mean, this was for me in this book. It was the last, the last third, pretty much, got written very, very quickly, and it's all that coincides with. I mean, the last third is where it all gets more sort of actiony and a bit mm. more sort of exciting. Um, so maybe that tells me that I should, um, I should stop <laughs> trying to say anything and just write a load of capers. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean that was that was a lot of fun when we get into the high jinks and the, yes. the bit that insists it's going to be a movie, even though it probably won't be. Well, I found it great fun. I'm sure lots of your other readers will as well. And thank you very much for coming to talk to us about it. Thanks very much, Kathy. That's it for now. We'll be back in April. Thank you to Robert Webb, Pete Perfides, Philip Jones, Alice O'Keefe, Caroline Sanderson and Nicholas Pearson. We're available on iTunes, so please subscribe. Do review us if you like us. If you'd like to talk to us, you can tweet at The Bookseller or come to our Facebook page or just email us on podcast at thebookseller.com. And now, here is a clip of Hamnet, written by Maggie O'Farrell and read by Daisy Donovan. And that will end the March edition of The Bookseller Podcast. This has been a heavy entertainment production. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink. Thanks for listening and happy reading. If you were to stand at the window in Hewlands and crane your neck sideways, it would be possible to see the edge of the forest. You might find it a restless, verdant, inconstant sight. The wind caresses, ruffles, disturbs the mass of leaves. Each tree answers to the weather's ministrations at a slightly different tempo from its neighbour, bending and shuddering and tossing its branches as if trying to get away from the air, from the very soil that nourishes it. On a morning in early spring, fifteen years or so before Hamlet runs to the house of the physician, a Latin tutor is standing in this place at the window, absently tugging on the hoop through his left ear. He is watching the trees, their collective presence, lined up as they are, fringing the edge of the farm, brings to his mind the backdrop of a theatre, the kind of painted trickery that is unrolled quickly into place to let the audience know they are now in a sylvan setting, that the city or streets of the previous scene are gone, that they are now on wooded, uncultivated, perhaps unstable ground.